Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Today's guest is Nancy Lublin. Nancy has built three incredibly forward-looking nonprofit organizations, eschewing the sleepy stereotypes of the nonprofit world and instead bringing the zeal of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur to each. While attending NYU Law School, Nancy bootstrapped Dress for Success, an organization which has now outfitted close to 1 million women in 21 countries for their job interviews, helping them at a critical moment that can lead to economic self-sufficiency. Nancy left Dress for Success in 2003 to help save Do Something, something dosomething.org, which was on the verge of insolvency at the time. In five months, she turned the organization around, and now, many years later, millions of students worldwide join campaigns Start campaigns, join campaigns where they donate donate jeans or clean up cigarette butts or visit seniors' homes um, in their local communities. And as she was, in her own words, slaying it at Do Something, she set the stage for a successor to take over because a new project was emerging. During a Do Something campaign, Nancy's team started to get some harrowing texts from a student. You'll hear about it in the show. And she keyed into the idea that people in crisis need an outlet via text messaging crisis text line emerged, and she's now leading a team of countless volunteers and, of course, a professional staff in her office, helping those in crisis get the help they need. Crisis text line has fielded a whopping 26 million texts in only three short years from those suffering from depression, abuse, drug problems, and more. They've helped these individuals get through the moment of crisis to seek professional help. And as exciting as it is, saving uh, saving lives and, and helping those in need, Nancy is equally passionate about the data they've harnessed because each data point, each text is its own data point. And Crisis Text Line uses data to help some in dire need get ahead of the queue or manage, um, you know, understand that they need to staff at, at, a, at a challenging time of day or month for, the, for certain at-risk populations. The story is amazing. You can hear Nancy talk about it in her own, uh, in her two TED Talks, just Google it. And, um, and of course, you'll hear it today um, in her own voice. Um, Speaking of own voice, who is this disembodied voice? I am your host, Jeremy Scheinwald. I'm the founder of the Mission Driven Group, and I'm a longtime uh, volunteer podcaster for VFA, uh, Venture for America. We've interviewed close to 80 entrepreneurs to tell you their real stories, the real ups and downs, the stories behind the veneer of the websites or the public image. Um, And uh, if you enjoy this show, like it on iTunes, tell friends about it. Um, It'll help us. Uh, to sustain ourselves and make sure we bring you more great content. And of course, in case you're wondering, when I said VFA, what does that acronym mean? Venture for America is a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city. Think Detroit or Baltimore or Cleveland, um, where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and support our work, or even to apply to be a fellow, check out VentureForAmerica.org. And now, 
Here is our interview with Nancy Lublin. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Okay. Um, Nancy, so thanks so much for, for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, right before Thanksgiving, and uh, and then I surprised you with peppers today by accident, <laughs> and you have pepper allergy. You know what? A so. normal human would not be felled by peppers. It's okay. <laughs> uh, so let's talk. I, I'm, you know, I, I, you know, as you know, I did my homework, and um, I was interested. So at the beginning, so you, you started, you know, your... I guess the, the last stage before your professional career was was NYU Law School, and uh, and I, I just I don't know if that was an audible groan or just a physical groan. It was an there. Audible, audible, hopefully physical groan. That was the only thing you could do that's worse than peppers. Well, that's <laughs> it's very much uh, in the VFA spirit. I think where we're trying to get people to like to like issue uh, you know the 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 conventional path of like you know Please. law school and yes. go do things that are entrepreneurial yes. so, like, so you're you're the model for this i guess um i think you're answering my question so there was there was no lawyer in you at all in some alternate universe like it wasn't like so you started dress for success while in law school yes. had you not found dress for success you would not be say i'd be miserable you know okay <laughs> i would just be i would be using crisis text line <laughs> i would i would be really miserable no i was supposed to doing social impact like social justice stuff you on, know that's on the law? why i went to law school i thought right. i was going to do social justice law I I thought it was going to be like women's rights law. And then I got to law school and realized it was the place where ideas go to die and <laughs> um, that everyone is just chasing law review, which is the privilege of looking up your professor's footnotes for some asinine article that 15 people will read. I mean, it's really just it's the land of trolls. It's awful. Okay. Um, have I made my no one I listening think... should ever go to law school. It's just is terrible. And there getting, are no jobs anyway. Yeah. So no, I don't think I would have I think I just would have been very very unhappy. I I, I in my father's mind, I was going to go have a corner office in a firm somewhere and live in the burbs and then become like a judge. And only until about 5 years ago he asked me when I was going to take the bar. <laughs> I was 40 fucking years old and he would still say to me, "How about taking the bar? What do you think? Maybe just to fall back, maybe just in case you need it." Right. Yeah, no. Yeah, that was my, my parents as well were very much like, well, we're well you're, you're going to be a lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah exactly. You're going to be a lawyer. Right. Or a doctor, but I don't like blood. So and, that was out. Yeah. One day I just woke up. I was like, I don't even think I know what being a lawyer means. Like, and I, I looked oh, at it. I was like, nothing oh, good. boy. Like, this is not like you don't walk around grandstanding in, in court. You're like, no, it's document you know, production. Yeah. Yeah. It is document production. Yeah. All right. Let's move past the law. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you. Um, so you, you started Dress for Success well at NYU Law School. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like the, I feel like the the genesis of it reads like an old you know book from an, from an old, old corny book of jokes, like a Jewish girl and some nuns walk into a church. But that is kind of how it started. Oh, what happened? Totally. What started? I had the idea. Well, I got a check from my great grandfather who came here with nothing, uphill both ways, barefoot type story. The Horatio Alger character in my family, and um, I got a five thousand dollar inheritance when he died, and thought. Fuck, I didn't earn this. He was amazing. I got to do something to honor his memory. So I had the idea for Dress for Success, told one of my professors, who then sent me to meet with three nuns in Spanish Harlem, because they all did different social change stuff in New York. I mean, my only experience with nuns prior to that was being Sister Berta on The Sound of Music in the sixth grade. I really, <laughs> I really expected them to be like, open the doors, arms linked, singing in like habits. <laughs> and instead, they were basically social workers. I mean, they were just cool women. Um, 
one mistake I made was uh, <laughs> they told me to take that $5,000 and put it in a six-month CD in the bank. Mm. Right. So essentially, I took financial advice from people who had taken an oath of poverty. Right. So I don't recommend that. Like, don't take financial <laughs> advice from nuns because it meant we started the organization with no money. Um, but they were awesome. I mean, they, they, I learned so much from them. So, I mean, was there, was there any internal opposition? We already talked about it was sort of conventional Jewish family. Like, why are you, oh, why please. are you putting your own money into Put this nonprofit? Put the money non-profit? in the market like yeah. your sister, you know? Like, I'm totally. I mean, it was all, absolutely. It was put the money in the stock market. What are you thinking? Which, as an entrepreneur, although at the time I didn't know how to spell entrepreneur, but as someone who has these proclivities, doubting me and like steering me another direction just gave me the chip on my shoulder that I needed to make it happen. I mean, right. when when people in my life are like, well, that's crazy or whatever, and just ignore it and like pretend it didn't happen, that's the best motivation for me. Are you a middle child? No, I'm the oldest child. Oh, it's interesting. Wow, is okay. this going to cost me 175 being here today? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm a middle child. I have oh, okay. that exact. I think I'm oh. partly an entrepreneur because well, you, people like told me, no, don't do this. Well, even like, if they yeah. acknowledge that you were there. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they remembered your existence. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, th- this thing takes off quickly. Like, I, did I read this correctly that like Gloria Steinem and Eileen Fisher were on the inaugural board? And, like, they were on the inaugural advisory board. I mean, the board were really my nuns, but they were on the advisory board and I did all kinds of, oh my gosh. Uh, Gloria Steinem I got because I went to, someone took me to an auction and I spent like $250 to buy an evening with Gloria Steinem. That's amazing. Um, because I wanted to hit her up for this. And so the night was, I went with her to like a poetry reading and you just got to sat ne- sit next to her. And I never really got to talk to her. So the end of the night, she was going to leave and I said, can I walk you home? And so the whole walk home, I talked to her about Dress for Success and my idea. And then I asked her to be on the advisory board, which was awesome. And, mm. and she was. Um, so that's how I got Gloria Steinem. And, um, and she's she's just been really good to dress for success throughout the years and talks about it. And, right. And so so going back to the like the bootstrapping of the organization, like did you I mean did you have any you know personal sense of like being paid back or like getting a salary out of this? Like was there any was there any I personal was vision? I was it? just miserable. <laughs> I was right. just I was looking for an escape, and law review looked awful, and so this was going to be my activity, and then it it consumed my life. And so I eventually dropped out of law school and said to the board, which I was not on, I I was like the unpaid employee. And then I said to them, I'm going to need a salary in order to do this. So they went right. into a closed door room and voted me uh, a $30,000 salary, which I was super excited about. Right. So um, so I, I ate a lot of ramen and um, and I was the executive director of Dress for Success did, New York. Did I read that you were playing poker at this time? To, or well, this is later on? that is also true. And then I started playing poker in underground clubs in New York City to support my <laughs> shoe habit. But that that was a totally different story. So my my like money to pay for food and rent and things was from that thirty thousand dollars. But then I needed an outlet for me where I could be less nice. And it's better than Fight Clubs, I suppose. It yeah, is so yeah. much better than Fight Club. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming. I don't know. Yeah. And um, it's a different kind of Fight Club. <laughs> and I, and it it I needed just an outlet where I could be where I could push people around. I think and just be somebody else and be anonymous and not be that not be asking people when you run a not-for-profit startup you are just Mm -hmm. constantly asking people for help and asking people for money and um you're kind of annoying um you're it's you're like evangelical at that Mm -hmm. point i did everything short of knocking on doors i mean i had an aunt who was on her deathbed who was in her 90s and i figured she can't take it with her. So I hit her up for 2500 bucks, And that year, I was not invited to my family Thanksgiving. 
That's let me amazing. tell you, the, the kicker is I got the money. I got the 2500 bucks, <laughs> and so I don't even regret it. Like, how terrible is that? But that's what it means to be, when you're a not-for-profit, like, startup, founder person, you just think that your thing is the most important thing in the entire world, and you can't see the forest for the trees. And so poker, for me, was a really good shut it all down and just focus outlet. And yeah, I made shoe money. Is that why you're hosting Thanksgiving this year? Because you're, because you're not invited again? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I just was like, fuck y'all. I'm just going to host it. So yeah. Well, also I make a really good turkey. Okay. Actually, in fairness, this is part of my, this is just a total non sequitur, but yeah, I yeah. believe in high impact parenting. Right. So I make their birthday cakes. I make the Halloween costumes. Absolutely. I make Thanksgiving and I do the Super Bowl. Okay. Other than that, I'm not really around that much. And my kids are like, why won't you be my class parent? I'm not going to be your class parent. But <laughs> but I do the high impact moments where right. there are photos. Because someday when the kids are like, you were never around. I'm like, let's go to the photos. Huh. I think I made that costume. Oh, that was a good turkey. I mean, high impact high parenting. Impact. This, is my, this is my philosophy of parenting. Uh, I, so I think my takeaway is I'm spending too much time with my daughters. Is that it? I'm, yeah, just yeah, pick just the pick. right moments. Okay. Exactly. High well, impact. Speaking of, speaking of picking the right moments, is there like is there a single decision or inflection point that leads to dress for success's growth? And like, wh- like when did you know that there was no turning back, this thing was actually going to work? Um... The first day, the first client that we addressed was actually, we had to do it in an Eileen Fisher store because we weren't ready yet. We weren't even open yet. But the first day that we actually opened the shop, we had 10 clients come all at once, all Russian immigrants, actually. And um, so, like, just put aside your notion of what it means to be on public assistance. These were all middle-aged white women. And they were all over the racks. Uh, they were checking every seam of clothing. Like it was really an unbelievable eye-opening thing, dispelling all the stigma of being on public assistance and who that was. And they were so excited and they left feeling like two inches taller, each one of them, that I thought, oh, we are really onto something here. Like, look at what just happened. So it was pretty immediate that we knew there was like a product market fit. Although I didn't know to call it a product market fit then. That was did, funny. Did you <laughs> I mean, did you have a did you have an overarching vision for it? Like, were you like, yes, one, this is one day this is going to be in twenty five countries or whatever, twenty one countries, whatever it's in now, and, really and a million didn't. women will be dressed? No, like, I didn't. I mean, I was twenty, what, twenty three, twenty. I must have been twenty three, twenty four, and um, no, it was in the basement of a church across the street from NYU School of Law, so I could run back and forth in between class, and. I knew it was fun and I knew that it was impactful and I was making a difference. I could see that. And then very quickly, again, I was that rabid, holy camoles, I just have to do more and more of this. We have to get bigger. There's so much need. We have so many people to help. I mean, this was also back when people wore suits every day and were judged really based on that. Um, It it was different than today. Right. And... I mean, it seems like this is one of three juggernauts that you've been, you've, you've, you know, you've just been at the helm of, um, you know, were there, I mean, was there any moment of time that this thing just was like, oh, maybe this won't work or we have like, was there ever a major crisis there? It was just a straight up. for success? Oh, totally. Oh yeah. Okay. By the way, don't ever trust anybody who either A, never had a down moment or B, doesn't think they had a down moment. Like the most interesting people are people who've been through failures and down moments. I mean, there were multiple times where I thought we don't have enough money to pay people or we lost our space. There was the one day I came into work and all of our computers were gone. They had been stolen. I mean, there are, um, oh gosh. Yeah. There are lots of like scary moments. There were lots of all nighters that I had to pull to make things happen. Um, anybody who's an entrepreneur, not only lives on a roller coaster, but prefers it. Yeah. 
No, no, I live day, I live day to day. Like I, yeah, I, I, I like it that I way. I live with paranoia day to day. Yeah, sure. it's kind of no. it makes me smarter and mm. focused. Very focused. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. Like this organization is so impactful, so personally meaningful to you. You've put your own, you know, like your own you bootstrap. How rare is it that you bootstrap a uh, you know a nonprofit? Oh, um, it's not own... rare at all. Everybody well... bootstraps a nonprofit. <laughs> I guess it's true. Andrew Yang bootstrapped uh, to start Bootstrap Venture for America um, as well. But but I mean, there's a lot of you in this organization, and it's taking off. And I mean, where was it when you decided to leave, and why leave? It was about 76 organizations, um, four countries, had helped about half a million women. I was seven years in, six years of dressing clients, seven years into planning and organizing it, and I was bored. Just bored. I was bored. It was time. I I loved it. I still dream about it at night. I mean, um, and um, I had I was having a great time. But there was enough money in the bank for a year. Um, there were great people. I had a successor who was terrific and ready to go. And the only thing between her and being CEO was me. I was in her way, and um, it was time to go. So I did. I also turned thirty. Um, had my first straight flush. Nine uh, eleven happened, and I met my husband. So okay. those things happened, and I was like, "Yeah, this chapter's over. I'm out." But, but was there any looking back? Like, did you did you keep a, a foot in? The, were you on the board or a chair? I did Chairman, or just I made like, a totally, walk away, and that's no. It. I made a totally clean break. Uh, there've been a couple of times I'll admit where I've thought maybe I should go back on the board because just because I love it and I miss it and I think I could be helpful to it. But um, look, I kind of look at this. I call it Scooby Doo syndrome. You you watched you saw Scooby Doo. I watched sober. Scooby-Doo. You saw Scooby Doo. Okay, sober. So remember, okay, so yeah. Scooby Doo. Every episode of Scooby-Doo is actually the same. There is a zombie or ghost haunting like a church or a movie theater that's going to be torn down to become a strip mall. And it's it's the Mystery Inc. gang is called in to like find the zombie or ghost. Shaggy and Scooby always find the zombie or ghost, even though Velma apparently knew what was going on the entire time and explains the whole thing. <laughs> and it turns out the zombie or ghost is not actually a zombie or ghost, but is like the granddaughter of the creator of the church or the janitor of the movie theater. It's a founder who doesn't want to leave and is literally haunting the freaking building. Every Scooby-Doo episode is about founder syndrome. Yeah. And I didn't want to be a zombie or ghost, like haunting the hallways. I, I wanted to make a clean break, leave on my terms when I still loved it and it still loved me. And move on. You don't want anyone walking in, unmasking you and saying, oh, it's actually it's her. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's old man McGillicuddy or whatever it was. And then I can say, you meddling kids. <laughs> no, I didn't want that. I never thought about that as the premise for Scooby Demigod. I, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure it's available somewhere. I'll go back and oh, re watch yeah. uh, you know, rewatch an episode. Absolutely. Um, so, so it was a pretty clean break. And then you, so, you know, you. And it's doing great without me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I had some stats here somewhere—a million, uh, almost a million people, twenty-one countries, yeah, a million women clothed, um, and nothing to do with Nancy Lublin. Well, it's pretty, pretty <laughs> I'm not solid there foundation at all. There. No, but yeah. I really have nothing to do with it, which is, right. I think, the best thing. I didn't. Is your successor still there? Yeah, the, the, yeah, she's doing great. I, um, it was never about me. So, this so is what, it shouldn't. Thirteen years since you walked out the door, and is that right? I guess so. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay. Damn, that's a long time. It makes me feel old. <laughs> so you, so do something. Is this? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I hope I'm not offended, but I think it's fair to say it was this kind of like disaster when you went, when you when you went to it. So like, you oh, go I mean, from if this, you looked up "fucked company" in the dictionary, our logo would have been next to it. Right. So you go from this like, you know, really promising, yeah. um, growing 
organization with tons of prestige yeah. to something that like, I mean, had Fucked. you misstated it, misstepped at all would have just gone under, I assume. Oh uh, yeah. You know. No, it was. What did you see? <laughs> like, um, you ever have uh, like a ficus plant and those leaves always fall off? You ever have a ficus plant like in college? No. I, what does it look like? It, it, it mostly dead, but um, like the, like the leaves it. always turn brown and they fall off. But like if the roots are good, you can bring it back. Right. It's just a plain green tree. Okay. But, um, but the roots, like you really can bring back a ficus plant. And I thought, you know what? The roots here are good. The name Do Something is great. Mm-hmm. And there really is a need for an organization for young people doing social change and volunteerism that's fun, that doesn't feel like a responsibility or a requirement um, or something your parents want you to do, but something that's yours. Um, I thought, I can do this. I, I was also, again, I just turned 30 and I was getting headhunted for big jobs, but only to make the headhunters look good. Because um, they were like, here's one weird candidate in the search who's only 30. <laughs> no one was taking me seriously. I wasn't going to get some kind of a big job. By the way, this happens for a lot of these tech startup people too. Like you you have some success in your 20s and you sell your company and you think you should only be like a CEO of another major company and no headhunter takes you seriously. Um, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to something that's a mess and turn it around and prove that I actually know what the fuck I'm doing. So what, what, I mean, what was it when you inherited it? What was, I'm assuming it was nothing like it was today. So what, what, 21 what was out of 22 people had just been laid off and I got there and within two weeks I fired the last person. Okay. Um, they had lost their free office space and everything was in boxes in storage somewhere in Queens and no one knew who had the key to the facility. Um, they were $250,000 in debt. There were 73 grand in the bank. It was a mess. But was it I mean, was it operating as an online engagement? No, and there were local like, offices like around clubs, the country. Right? Yeah, there were clubs and there were some local offices around the country, which I shut down. Unlike my fifth week on the job, the board apparently had a, a phone conference call without me to discuss firing me. Um, and I just said, hey, give me six months. Just give me six months. I mean, it can't be worse than it is now. So give me six months um, and we'll see what I can do. And, you know, P.S., when I left, it's the largest youth organization in America um, I left it in great hands. It's grown even just since I left uh, over a, a year ago. And um, uh, yeah, it's bigger than the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts combined. Hmm. So, uh, you know, wh- I mean, what are the steps? Like what, like what happened that you walked in? What did you change? What, what happened in those, in those six months? It was a year months? after Friendster and the year before Facebook. Okay. That was 2003. And I said, this internet thing is here to stay. We're going to go online. This is going to be the way to get young people. It's, we're going to disintermediate all the organizations. Although, again, I didn't know the term disintermediate. <laughs> um, and uh, I said, we're going to go around schools and around coaches and clubs. And I said, we're just going to go directly to young people and do it online. So I put the whole thing online. Um, and I remember we used to be really excited about hits. Remember when you used things talk about like web hits? <laughs> we used to be really excited about like we had 60,000 unique web hits, you know, things like <laughs> so that. So quit. It was adorable. And then, and then about seven years ago or so, um, two people on the team, like junior employees, I was on a conference call and I look out and they're all high-fiving each other. And I was like, what's going on? And two of them had pulled... 500 mobile numbers from our membership from defunct users, like people we hadn't heard from in six months. We'd probably emailed them 20 times and had never heard from them. And they sent them a text message. And in nine minutes, they had a 20% response rate, Hmm. which anybody who understands marketing, like that is a massive, massive response rate. And they were all high-fiving and hugging each other. I mean, I thought, what, is like Carl Rove resigned or something? What has happened? But it turns out, no, they did this great test. 
And so um, I was like, that is genius. You guys are awesome. And let's do this. So we pivoted to text. But uh, just going even more granular, I mean, so you're, you're, it's just you. You take this thing oh, online. Right. And it's like, how, I mean, how do you get to the point even more, but the, the point from we're broke right. <laughs> to we actually have a staff. Right. So, gosh, the first thing I did was I did a cattle call for interns. I just put mm. like a notice out there that we were looking for paid interns. So that 73 grand, I spent some of it on interns. And I literally just had like 50 people show up in the office and um, interviewed them all at once in one big room and split them in half and sent half into one room, half in another, walked into one room and said, position's not for you. Walked in the other room, did another question, split them in half again, and ended up with four interns as a result of that, like in one day, on my first day. And these turned out to be great people. And um, I hired actually most of them full time when I had money. And I went and I sort of leveraged past relationships that I had from Do Something and convinced people to sponsor stuff, rather um, from Dress for Success and convinced them to sponsor things. Um, and um, yeah, and, and slowly built back up a team. So you're in your 30s when you take the helm of Do Something and of course, you don't get any younger as you go. How do you how do you ensure that you stay? Oh, that's sad. I'm getting older too. We all are. Uh, how do you how do you ensure that you stay? Uh, you know, like like a, how do you stay connected with those? I mean, there's there are obvious modes, but it's 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 like it's not just like okay, I, I'm on Facebook. Like it's it's just how do you how do you immature? <laughs> that's um, it. No, I mean, I while I was running do something, I really felt like it was my obligation to not just know but to love the target market. It's like I watched iCarly every Friday night for years. I don't even know what that is. Oh, you missed out. It was, okay. That was some good stuff. Um, I watched it every Friday night for years. And um, I, yeah, it was not just on Facebook. I mean, when I was like one of those first people on Snapchat. Now so I'm, you're I'm living like, I'm the demographic. Like that's you the... just have to live it and love it. And by the way, if you're, if you don't like, like, for example, I'm allergic to peppers. I should probably never run a Mexican restaurant. You know right. what I mean? Like, if you should really only do something where you love your target market, um, it's called dog fooding. And it's super, super important. You got to eat what you make. Mm -hmm. So I read about how Do Something had a high energy and a reverent culture. <laughs> you wrote, and this is a quote, I think this is from your, from your, uh, from your resignation letter, actually, if I recall. Um, it's, a, it's a simple formula that puts us on all those best place to work lists. One, hire the most amazing, wonderful weirdos. Two, build important things. Three, have fun every day. So let's focus on one, hiring amazingly weird, amazing weirdos and you know, slash people. What, what does that mean? How do, you, how do you ensure you're hiring an amazing weirdo? So um, uh, I, we've got, I've got three world rules when I hire people, and I took them, I borrowed them from someone else or from DJ Patel who's actually the chief data scientist in the United States. And he was at LinkedIn and places like that before. But um, he's these are his rules originally. And now I use them too. So one is what I want to be in a bunker with you. I'm going to spend more time with you than I spend with my family and friends. So really what I'm looking for is, are you an asshole or boring? Because either of those, th those things are the same to me. I don't want either. Um, second is, uh, can you hit a home run in 90 days? Like just hit the ground running because we don't have some fancy training program. This is like, Boom. Are you able to move quickly? Do you need your handheld? This is not the place. And three is, are you capable of doing something amazing in four to six years? We're not looking to hire people who are going to just stay there and coast. We want you to come up with ideas. Are you going to push us? Are you going to make me better? Um, you know, do you ask interesting questions? Do you read? Mm -hmm. um, are you thinking? Mm -hmm. Are you coachable? All those kinds of stuff. Are you growing? Or are you already fully formed and you just want to chill? Right. So... Number three, have fun every day. That's that was the, the one, two, and three. Number three was have fun every day. Yeah. 
like cynic would say that millennials expect work to be fun every day they and that do. that's not really real like so it's a two-parter are, are they are you know you have all this experience yeah, with these kids it's is, not is it, either or it's not like you have fun every day and you don't do work and you don't do hard things i just think millennials have this like i just don't only want to do hard things and fun doesn't have to be something that i just do on the weekends or at night like if if fun is you take your whole office out for drinks or out to a baseball game what you're saying is fun doesn't happen here in the office it happens out there and I think you can do hard things and you can create really important, smart work while having fun. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's not an either or. It can all happen at once. So how did you make it, how did you make it fun at, at, at do something? I mean, there <clears throat> were so many fun, silly, quirky things in that office from the physical environment to um, traditions. Like to this day, anytime I hear Toto's Africa, I just burst out in laughter. It's, Anybody who ever worked to do something knows, like, that's the song. If that plays, do something, people will find each other and just start dancing, going crazy, because it plays on a loop every Tuesday starting at 5 o'clock for an hour. Pat, can we exit to, 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 to Toto's Africa? <laughs> it's called Toto Tuesday, and it just plays on a loop for an hour on Tuesdays at 5 o'clock. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So I'm, I'm sure there were so many amazing campaigns. Can you, you know, wax nostalgic about one or two that, that, were, that do something did that, that were really impactful? I think one of the really exciting ones was Teens for Jeans which is really neat. Aria, who's now the CEO there, um, dreamt this up and cold called and sold it. And um, this was, we called the youth shelters and said, what do you need? When a homeless youth shows up, what do they ask for? Like a shower, food? And they all said, no, they want jeans. They want to be like everybody else. And jeans, you can wear all four seasons. You don't have to clean them often. In fact, they're better when you don't wash them often. Um, and so we said, wow, we can do this. So um, she created this campaign, Teens for Jeans, that recycles jeans. And we would collect, you know, a million pairs of jeans every year. Um, it was a pretty cool campaign. Hmm. So more quoting from you. This was, I think, again, in your resignation letter. We did a whopping $24 million in revenue. I'm actually going to stop there. And, you know, you said, like, so much of, of nonprofits out there begging in some ways. But do something wasn't wasn't really working on like the fundraising model, was it? It was like there was a lot of corporate sponsorship money coming in. Yep. So were you, was this like a very unorthodox it, non, it, nonprofit a, Apparently structure? it was. I didn't know any better because remember my first job was as founder and CEO of Dress for Success. So I never really trained under anybody else. I just did what I thought made the most sense. So at Dress for Success, we sold corporate sponsorships and co- and, and had cause marketing money supporting Dress for Success. And so I did the same thing at Do Something. Here we have this great audience, young people. So you could pay a lot of money for an ad in a magazine or an ad on MTV that they may or may not see. Or here we have this captive audience who has opted in and they're switched on young people. It's probably a better spend to sponsor a Do Something campaign. So that's how we made money there. Um, I just, yeah, just, I've... I've never been somebody who thought I should do something a certain way because it's always been done that way. I've always thought I should do something a certain way because it makes sense, right. which was really, really annoying as a child. <laughs> I think my parents and my teachers 
found me quite annoying because I asked a lot of questions like, why does it happen this way? Or why wouldn't it happen the other way? I just, I always question things because I, I don't really give a fuck if it's the traditional way or the way it's always been done. I want to do it the way that makes the most sense. So like, is this, is this, you know, you're, you're running this company with a business discipline, you know, is this, I didn't realize because okay. of course my whole life I was like, Oh, you're an activist. You're the, so you're a, a not for profit person. And somewhere in those early days of do something, I learned the word entrepreneur. I learned how to spell the word entrepreneur. And there was all this talk really Silicon Valley. Um, and, um, and I became friends with a lot of those people and, and they owned me as part of them, which I'm grateful for. So Reed Hoffman never said to me, you're, you're different from us. What he's, he just, he'll say, Oh yeah, Nancy's a serial entrepreneur. He doesn't say social entrepreneur or she starts not for profits. He, and that was so, um, important for me to finally feel like I had a posse and I fit in with people and that there was a name for what I was doing and that if I was, and am weird, at least there were other weirdos like me. Hmm. It was so, um, it was so grounding. I finally figured out who I was. So, so I mean, you mentioned, you know, Reed Hoffman, and you know, you're 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 killing it at, at in your words, you're slaying it. In, this at, is a uh, fun interview. You're saying yeah. so many nice things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do my best not to be fawning. I try to be fair, so you should know that it's sincere. So, so you're slaying it to do something. Go and, on. And uh, <laughs> and and. Uh, and um, and you make another decision to move on. And like, did it ever, like to Price's text line, which we'll go to next, but did you ever consider, you know, being sort of a, you know, we're using tech terminology here, like a Elon Musk or a Jack Dorsey type where you can have one foot on, you know, two exciting business and two, one so straddle, one foot straddling. And I did for a while. I mean, I, I ran do something and Price's text line at the same time for a while. And I, I don't recommend it. Um, I also, in fairness, I had a fantastic leader waiting in the wings. I mean, Aria, who came up with Teens for Jeans, like I said, was our COO. Um, she's phenomenal. She made me a better leader every day. And she was ready. She was ready to be CEO. And so, and again, I was in her way. So, um, so I left. So I, 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 it was time. I probably should have left earlier, but, um, a lot of not-for-profit CEOs, I think, don't move on because they don't know what they're going to. And so I probably stayed longer than I should have. I still miss do something. I love those. I love those people over there. It's really just an incredible group of people. Mm -hmm. um, but um, she's doing a great job. I talked to her. I was I was talking to her before I walked in here. Sticking with that Silicon Valley thing theme, you took this playful swipe in your TED talk. You said it's a quote: "The only difference between me and those people down the road in their hoodies." with their fat-funded companies is that I'm not inspired by helping you find Chinese food at 5 a.m. in Dallas. You you're, you mentioned that you're, we'll get to this, but you're inspired by data. But, you know, it's, it's playful and you set up with a smile, but does it does it irk you that an Uber can raise, uh, you know, $10 billion, you know, in, yes. as, as one of many rounds, but Crisis Text Line might struggle to raise, you know, I don't know, a million dollars, whatever it is, and lives are at stake. Yeah, it's really frustrating. It is, it is. It is the chip on my shoulders when people don't treat me like I'm running a business or I'm an entrepreneur um, on the same par. Um, you know, I have family members and friends who still think they're going to find me at home in the middle of the day. That Like that's the best place we'd <coughs> like to call a landline at home and leave <coughs> me a message as if somehow I'm watching days of our lives in the middle of the day. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. um, who think that what I do is like nice and soft and sweet. Nobody who knows me well 
<coughs> Pardon me. Nobody who knows me well would describe me as nice or soft or sweet. Right. Um, funny, quirky, sure, but not nice or soft or sweet. And um, yeah, I, I uh, it is really frustrating. It, it is it is really frustrating. <coughs> no one complains that their iPhone costs a lot of money because there was R and D that had to go into that iPhone. But people complain that there's overhead that goes into social services that save right. lives. But like we have R and D too. You want us to have R&D. You want us to have overhead so that we do a good job and we evaluate what we're doing. Right. I mean, similarly, I guess, I mean, is there, um, you know, I mean, like you have run three high growth companies with multi, multi-million dollar budgets. I mean, is there, is there any, you know, you were playing poker to make, to make, to, to make ends meet. I mean, is there, you, you got to look at some of these paychecks for, for people and say like, wow, you know, someone, some guy in Silicon Valley is cashing out for hundreds of millions of dollars. I bootstrapped this thing. I mean, does, does that I mean, I'm paid, you? I'm paid fine now. I'm not like I'm paid, I'm paid enough now um, as a CEO of Crisis Tech Sign. I'm not paid gobs of money. And um, yeah, I mean, I will confess, and I've said this before publicly, like I speak Japanese. I went to fancy schools and people who I went to school with are earning tons of money. And my husband would tell you, it does piss me off. Like mm. sometimes when we go to friends' houses for dinner, or we go visit them. He just knows that the whole way home, I'm going to just be <laughs> ripping him and like, why aren't we, you know, and, and my kids are the financial aid kids at their school and they share a bedroom. My kids are gonna be the only kids who go to college and think their dorm room is huge. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's it definitely is frustrating because I don't think there's a labor theory of value out there. Like I don't think that the people who make tons of money are working any harder than I am or are doing a better job or a more important job for the world than I am. So that's kind of frustrating. Um, they're also no happier than I am. I really love what I do. Um, I love my life. And, um, and my kids love each other because they do share that bedroom and they can't avoid each other. So they don't have the option of fighting <laughs> and going to their own rooms. And I picked this. So I'm not a martyr and don't feel sorry for me. Like I chose this life and I'm finding ways also to supplement my income. Like I'm on, I'm on a for-profit board now. I'm, I do some speeches where I get paid. Oh, what really pisses me off is when people ask me to do those speeches for free. Right. And I say like, why? Why should I do this for free when you would pay that for-profit per person or that author? You'd pay them. Right. But like people assume that not-for-profit people are just going to give and give and give. And I'm right. going to mentor everybody's kid. And um, <laughs> um, like I don't think Jamie Dimon gets lots of emails being like, right. will you mentor my kid? Like, no. But somehow. So, yeah, there are times where this path in life is, um, is frustrating. But um, I I'm also blessed. Like I just – my life is so great. So ultimately, I guess what you're saying is it's very much worth it to you as, you know, if if, oh. if you wanted to go somewhere else, the opportunities are there, but you choose to stay. I, I would do this for less money. Right. And I would work more hours if I could stay awake. So let's talk about Crisis Text Line. I mean, it has this really, I mean, chilling, harrowing um, founding story. And, you know, you say in your in your TED Talk that's a story that still haunts you. You know, can you, can you share the story for our audience? It was born of an edge case. Um, some of the best companies are, you know, when you make something for a particular audience or use and then people start using your thing in a different way. So that's what happened. We were texting all these people to do something and then kids started texting us about their personal things. And we actually also thought of text to do something originally as a, just a push mechanism, but it turns out like people were responding. And so they started responding with being bullied, um, 
you know, friends who were runaways or on crystal meth and things like that. And then we had a, yeah, we had a really harrowing message from a girl who said she was being raped by her father. Um, and the person who received it just brought that, printed it out on a piece of paper and brought it into my desk and put it on my desk and said, I don't know what to do with this. And you know, like sometimes when you read something, you have to read it like two or three times over because mm-hmm. you're like, wait, did I get that sentence right? I just remember reading that piece of paper over so many times being like, wait, what? Wait, mm-hmm. what? Um, so yeah, we sent her the phone number for Rain, which is a terrific rape and incest organization. Never heard back from her. I've, I've actually pulled that mobile number, um, and tried to call her and text her multiple times mm. myself. Um, and it, it's been five years and we've never heard back from her. But it was, it, but at least it was, I mean, I, you know, I mean, obviously we hope, I we hope, hope this person knows. is well, but, but it's the genesis no, for I something amazing. I hope she's amazing. alive and, and healthy and safe. And I hope she's heard me talk about her. And, and knows what she inspired and that because she was brave and, and I think desperate, she gave me this idea that's now helped over 600,000 other people. So I hope she hears this. So from there, the idea obviously presents itself to you and you're like, this this just has to be its own, yeah. its own outlet. Let's, and I, let's go. I convinced some people in the office to kind of help me out and then... I just I did it myself and I really I um and then I it took me two years to actually raise the money. Um so it was hard to raise the money. How, how that was awful. Need to raise to I, I said that I wouldn't do anything until I had four million dollars. And so um and then I, I when I had money raised, I hired two people away from do something um who really created it. So a CTO and a chief data scientist were the first two hires, and they're the ones who really should be credited with building Crisis X Line. So why don't we talk about the, the the data angle for a second? So you know what is why did you need a chief data scientist to to be a, a, at an organization that's going to field texts? Because <laughs> we knew from the beginning that we were going to be able to auto tag in real time and learn amazing things that would make us better and make the world better. So um, you know we knew that we were building a tech company, even though it's a not for profit. It was a tech startup, and that we would be problem solving through products, not people, that we were going to want to look at um, wait times and quality and that the fastest, most effective, accurate ways to do that um, is through products, not through people. So can you make that real for real for someone? Sure. Like- so here's an example. We knew that um, that a, a hotline like this shouldn't be chronological. It should be stack ranked by severity. Like a hospital emergency room where the gunshot wound is taken before the sprained ankle. It should be the same thing. So we originally put about a dozen words into the algorithm so that if you texted in the word overdose or suicide, we would make you number one in the queue and mm-hmm. the conversation would be coded orange. And then this summer, we brought in a machine learning data scientist from Carnegie Mellon who looked at our corpus of messages, which at the time was about 20, 22 million messages in total. And he could see from those messages what actually ends up in a 911 active rescue um, and realize that there were thousands of n-grams, bigrams, and trigrams, so words and word combinations that are actually a higher indication of risk than even the word suicide hmm. or overdose. So you want to guess what the top words are? No. Take, take a guess with the number one word for imminent risk. What, what the, the highest likelihood that this will end up in us calling 911? Help. What's the most common drug in your house? Tylenol? Yes. So ibuprofen, Tylenol, Advil, 
um, aspirin, all of those words, they're in your house. And so they not only show ideation and plan, but you have the means and it's imminent. You've got the timing. It's right. You can grab that bottle. And so when people text those words into us, sometimes they tell us they've already swallowed it or it's Mm -hmm. in their hands or they're about to or they're thinking about it. And that's when we know we've got a very serious conversation on our hands. So that's an example of machine learning. And it's machine learning because it wasn't a one-time study. But as the corpus of messages gets larger, that algorithm gets smarter. It's like Skynet from the Terminator where the machines are getting smarter. Right. Um, that's that's how this works. So, I mean, so much of Dress for Success is... Is, is like optimistic in, you know, you're, you're, you're helping people and so much of do something is, I mean, I would assume almost all of do something is, is very positive, but this has, you know, obviously there's huge positives. You're helping people in crisis situations, but this has some really, you know, dark and sad undertones. Like how do you, how do you, you know, are there, can you, is it possible to not take your work home at night every day? No, but I love it. So for a long time, I wasn't on the platform. I didn't dog right. food it. And I said, actually, to be CEO, I need to stay away from that shit. And then one of um, the staff, one of our supervisors was, said to me in May, Nancy, you need to be on here. The community needs to see you on here and you need to experience this. And now good luck getting me off there. Right. I mean, I love actually being a volunteer in my own organization. It is strangers talking to strangers in their most dire moments. Mm-hmm. And you will never meet and they'll never thank you. And you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It is the most beautiful altruistic thing. It is so inherently hopeful. Um, and you're helping someone help themselves again. I mean, I think if I look back on these three things, like if I'm in heaven with St. Peter, which would be weird as a Jew, but if I were in heaven with St. Peter and he was like, so what's this all about, Nancy? I think that my thing has been creating organizations to help people help themselves that I'm like the ultimate enabler, mm. um, that Dress for Success was giving you a suit so that you could go reclaim your own destiny and do something is um, giving young people ideas so that they can go build communities that they want to live in and, and build a more positive world that they want to see. And Crisis Text Line is reminding you how strong you are and getting you from that hot moment to a cool moment and helping you remember the coping skills that you have, like music or exercise or taking 10 deep breaths so that you can get through that really intense moment. So you, know, you mentioned 22 million texts by the summer. I, I checked today. It was 26 million texts already. Yeah, I just noticed that too. I didn't realize we crossed 26. Uh, well, how many volunteers on a daily basis does it take to field these texts? Like, So as of this morning, we have 2,401. Um, <laughs> so um, again, this is the data-driven thing. Um, we use Slack and there's a we have a Slack channel for our KPIs and every single morning at 7 a.m. I'm like, I'm here for it. Like at 7 a.m. the KPIs get posted from the past 24 hours and 28 days rolling. So as of this morning at 7 a.m., over the last 28 days, we had 2,401 active crisis counselors. (laughs) (laughs) So boredom is your kryptonite. And, you know, what is, what about this is, is keeping you engaged and interesting? What's, what's different the third time round? Um, This is a single metric of engagement and highly, highly focused with a very wide audience. Um, I don't even think about marketing. It's pure organic growth. Uh, It's a marketplace, basically like Etsy or Airbnb, where we don't control the demand and we don't control the supply. That's really juicy. It's really fun. I am learning so many things every day, just mind expanding things like I didn't know what machine learning was before I did this. Mm. And now we're kind of on the cutting edge of of doing it. Some of the things that we're doing with AI and machine learning are really neat. 
But and is it a heart attack to like to not have sufficient supply? Like, if, well, actually, we do have sufficient supply. We don't control it necessarily, but it right. is sufficient so far. Knock on wood. We've stayed lockstep one set of ahead step ahead of demand. Um, because actually one crisis counselor can handle multiple textures right. at a time because it's asynchronous. Right. Um, look at that. All those big words I just used. <laughs> I mean, I'm learning so much every day. I could not spell asynchronous, by the way, but I do know what it means. And that's fun. Like I'm, I have this job where I get to learn things every day. I get to make things and work with people smarter than me every day and save lives. It's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I'll give you that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so what are the pain points? You know, what what is what's holding? Is anything holding you? See, yeah, I mean, back? sure. So, um, supply side, right? So the same thing that holds back Lyft and Uber and Etsy and Airbnb for them, it's um, they don't have any shortage of people of riders or uh, people wanting to buy things or rent rooms. It's all about. The supply side. So I definitely need more crisis counselors. We're always looking to recruit, especially people who are not, who are U.S. citizens, but not in the U.S. So other time zones. Mm. We love Hawaiians mm. um, because, uh, and we love those West Coasters um, because most of our volume comes between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. Mm. We love insomniacs. Um, we really, we need crisis counselors. So if you are a U.S. citizen or have a U.S. social security number and you're over the age of 18, you should apply online with us and go through the 34-hour training. It is not for everyone, but it is the best volunteer thing I personally have ever done. And I was scared. I didn't think I'd be any good at it. I thought it'd be too scary. It's fucking amazing. And and just to be clear, you don't need to be a social worker no. or a psych. You can be, you know, anyone who Who's, who has empathy, passes the who's test. caring. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really, it's just the most beautiful thing. So let, let's let's talk about this data, and and I'm, I'm I think everyone's very tired of the election, but I I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, so it was a fairly stressful election. You think? To, yeah. <laughs> to, I'm I'm assuming the data suggested that it did. Um, we saw a lot of conversations where people mentioned one candidate or the other. Hmm. We saw a lot of conversations leading up to the election, where election talk would affect everyday Americans. So as there was a lot of anti-Muslim rhetoric coming out of several Republican candidates, we saw a massive increase in people who self-identified as Muslim and were feeling things like anxiety, bullying, depression. That was really painful to watch. Mm -hmm. And then on election night itself, as things took a surprise turn, we saw a huge, huge influx of volume. So we actually did about four times normal volume um, in that 24-hour period. And um, the number one word we saw was scared. Hmm. And we had a majority of texters were LGBTQ. And we also saw a lot of um, sexual assault and rape survivors who were saying, what do I do? Um, do I still take my court case? Should I still go to the police? Should I just give up? And then we saw um, children of immigrants who mm -hmm. were concerned that their family members would be deported. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty alarming 24 hours. Um, the, the volume has since sort of come back to earth. There's still a lot of election feels out there, I would say, but, um, it is stabilized. Did, did the, did the, did the crises literally match the, the, the electoral distribution? You know, could you say there are, there were, were, there were broader crises, you know, on the, on the coast? Oh, funny. I haven't looked at that. I haven't looked at like a red state, blue state divide. We should do that. All right. That'd be easy enough to do. I haven't looked at that. Um, 
frankly, we were just trying to stay, again, one step ahead of it. And our community rallied. I mean, I think a lot of our crisis counselors were also like, what can I do? How can I help? And so they came on the platform. And we had about 25% of our entire community hmm. on the platform as crisis counselors in that 24-hour period, hmm. but, which is amazing. I mean, they... They were like, this is how I'm going to help and make a difference, which is one of my, I mean, look, um, it's going to be a very interesting four years. Um, one of the things you can do is focus locally on your own community and making it a place that you want to live. And so for our crisis counselors, that's the crisis text line platform is there's a way to, for strangers to give kindness to other strangers. Did the, did the, as this you know, the elections, has it brought a surge of volunteers? Are more people? It has. Yes. We have yeah. seen more people apply to be volunteers, which is great. Okay. We could use more. So you, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, this in a little bit of a cheeky way, but you have no problem leaving a, a big audacious success. And I, I guess what I, the, the thread I picked up between, you know, um, dress for success and do something is that once there's a successor there, that's actually, that's, that, you know, it's, it, that could be the so long. I mean, should, should anyone be concerned if you're, if you've got a pretty qualified success, uh, successor sitting yeah, around at Crisis Next Line? I don't have that person no. yet, but, um, I really love, yeah, I love seeing other people lead. I mean, for somebody who's, I'm I'm very much an alpha, but um, the thing about alphas is that sometimes when there's another alpha, like I'm fine to have somebody else lead if they're really ready to do it. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, I, I we're not there yet. I mean, Crisis Tech Center is at the bottom of this mountain. We have, most people in America haven't heard of us yet. We've heard from 40 other countries um, when we'd love to bring this to other markets. So I'm working on that. There's so much more to do. So I'm not going anywhere um, in the, in the short run at Crisis X Line. And yet I won't be there forever. That's mm -hmm. true. And I, I will find somebody else who I'll bring into the organization at some point in time. I love promoting from within. I really love seeing other people figure out who they are and grow and flourish. And I know I'm the entrepreneur. So what's where, do, where does Crisis X Line go aside from serving more people? Is there... A grand vision for five years from now or 10 years from now? Yeah, it should be global. So not just international, but global. It should be a global platform by then where people are able to help people from all over the place, which will foster so much good understanding. Um, and then the data, think about being able to map this. It's one thing to be able to say worst time of day for substance abuse or worst day of the week for anxiety in America. It's another thing to be able to say it for parts of the world where there's no information about mental health, right? So like... Um, right. you know, the Middle East or, right. or rural parts of India, um, like what is going on and why, um, so that academics and journalists and policymakers and funders, families can, can, can understand some of this. Um, it's like turning on the lights in a place that's dark mm -hmm. and seeing the cockroaches scurry. Like, that's <laughs> really what I want to do with mental health is like, we kind of know there are bugs in that dark room. If we can bring the data, we can turn on the lights. That's the first time I've used that metaphor. It might be the last. That that was not <laughs> awesome. But anyway, there you go. That was a New York metaphor. Cockroaches <laughs> in the dark. We can redo it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, um, this has been amazing. I mean, I, I, this been a lot of fun. And this is the first um, show that. <clears throat> Pardon me. In advance, my wife has said, I can't wait to listen to this one. Aww. We'll actually listen to. Great. Um, so I don't know how many people <laughs> listen to the show. Bringing families together. I'm not a data person. I don't know how many people <laughs> listen to the show, but you're going to have at least my wife listening this week. Oh, she, she, uh, she's been following you on Facebook for a long time. Hi. And was super excited. Hey, Samantha. Um, and it's been a lot of fun for me. I mean, uh, you know, uh, th thanks so much for, for coming and, and, for, and for sharing your story with thanks. us. 
It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks to you and Pat. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.